Imagine you've just spent a two-week holiday with your new spouse in the Maldives. The two of you have been together for a few years, but this was your first big trip together. You've had an amazing time. It was the holiday of your dreams. The following week, you spend time apart. Your partner heads to Stuttgart for work. Here's the question. When will this imaginary couple be happiest? When will they have the most desire for one another? The rational answer is to say it's during that two-week holiday in the Maldives. Spending that wonderful time together should increase the couple's desire. But that's not true. A study of 237 individuals showed that couples desire each other most, not when they're together, but when they're apart. This imaginary couple isn't hankering for each other during the holiday. No, their enthusiasm comes from separation. But here's the thing. This phenomenon doesn't just affect couples. No. The psychology behind this effect determines our happiness in all aspects of life. At least, that's according to today's guest, the world-leading neuroscientist, Tally Sherrod. All of that coming up in today's Nudge after this short break. Success Story, hosted by Scott D. Clary, is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. Success Story features Q&A sessions with successful business leaders, keynote presentations, and conversations on sales, marketing, business, startups, and entrepreneurship. Back in December last year, Scott did an episode with marketing legend Seth Godin on how to hire well, which I think is well worth tuning into. So listen to Success Story wherever you get your podcasts. Today, I'm talking to a world-leading neuroscientist. She is someone who has researched how to live a happier life. I'm Tali Shert, and I'm a professor of cognitive neuroscience at University College London. To start, Tali explained how most of us don't understand happiness. The things we expect to improve happiness often aren't as important as we think. People often have like great things in their life, and I'm sure you do. So it could be um, a loving relationship or a great home or a good job. But those things often have limited impact on their daily happiness. Um, and that's a bit surprising. But at the same time, also, terrible things are around us. And it's, you know, sexism, racism, cracks in our personal relationships, inefficiencies in the workplace. And we get used to those as well. And so we don't notice those things. And because of that, we don't try to change them. Um, and it's both cases. It's not because humans are lazy or stupid. It's because of a basic feature of the brain that really governs every neuron that is um, in our brain, and it, that's habituation. And that's our tendency to respond less and less and less to things that are constant that don't change. So for example, you can enter a room filled with cigarette smoke, and after about 20 minutes, you can't even smell the smoke any longer. Um, and so just as you get smoke, uh, you get used to the smell of tobacco, you can also get used to new love and to a breakup, to winning the lottery and to going bankrupt, to smelling the ocean and to pollution. And it turns out that this phenomenon of habituation, it affects almost every aspect of our life. So from social media to climate change, to creativity, mental health, dishonesty. And so we ask, how do we dishabituate, right? How can we start noticing both the good and the bad to kind of make what's thrilling on Monday also thrilling on Friday and what's shocking on Tuesday also shocking on Sunday? And there's also interesting question of, would you want to do that? That imaginary couple I mentioned at the start of the show, they desired each other less during their two-week holiday because they got used to one another. They habituated. But it's not just couples who habituate, all of us do. 
To show how, Tally told me about a study involving macaroni and cheese. In this study, they had two groups, and one group they gave them mac and cheese to eat every day for lunch for a few weeks. The other group got mac and cheese only once a week. Um, so the first group who got it every day, they really liked their mac and cheese on the first day. Um, and the second day, they also liked the mac and cheese, but not as much as the first day. And the third day, less. The fourth day, less. You know, a week has gone by and they really can't stand mac and cheese anymore. And every day that goes by, they eat less and less of it because it's less appealing, right? And then the group that only ate it once a week, um, they continued to love it. Um, and they ate quite a lot of it. So, you know, this specific study is about mac and cheese, but we could generalize it, first of all, to any kind of food, right? Think about your favorite food. You're going to love it if I give it to you today, but less if I give it to you again tomorrow, and even less if I give it to you the day after and so on. Um, and it's not only food. It's really every aspect of our life, which is really great at the beginning. You get, you know, you move into your new home. It's wonderful and lovely and comfortable, and you really kind of notice it and it brings you joy, but less so um, as time passes. And relationships are the same and jobs are the same. There's a quote from a behavioral, actually he was an economist and not behavioral economist called Typer Skitovsky. And he says that pleasure results from incomplete and intermittent satisfaction of desires. And I think that really explains the mac and cheese example, and also all these other examples that we can really see in our own life. We habituate to mac and cheese. We enjoy it less and less over time. And this finding affects all walks of life. A different study conducted at Haifa University in Israel gathered a group of volunteers and showed them photos of adorable puppies. While the volunteers were observing the photos, their facial movements were measured using EMG recordings. EMGs record the electrical activities produced by skeletal muscles. It determines if a volunteer is happy by measuring how the muscles from their cheekbones extend to the corners of their mouth. When the volunteers first observed the cute photos, their cheekbone muscles were activated quite a bit. They reported feeling a lot of pleasure. They were clearly experiencing joy. However, over time, that joy habituates. The EMG reported less and less pleasure with each repeated exposure to the adorable puppy. Enjoyment drops. And yet, the volunteers continued to rate the photos as wonderful. Although they knew the photos were adorable, those photos no longer sparked joy. This happens not only with mac and cheese and adorable puppies, but with some of the biggest aspects of our lives, including marriage. When you... um record people's happiness when they first get married, actually happiness goes up on average. But then as time goes by, happiness goes back to baseline. Approximately two years after marriage, you're back at where you began. And the other way around too. Uh, divorce, for example, has quite an effect, a negative effect on average on individuals. Happiness goes down, but then people habituate, they get used to it, they adapt, and within two years, they go back to baseline effects. And so this is both a positive and a negative thing, right? I mean, if you think about it on the positive side, it creates motivation. Imagine your first job, your entry-level job. You were probably super happy about it, right? But what if you if you stayed super happy about your entry-level job forever? You wouldn't be motivated to go get the next promotion, right? So in some ways, it's good that we habituate because it pushes us to go further and further. And in fact, it also has a positive impact on our mental health in, in some respects, because 
it helps us bounce back from disappointment. So people who cannot habituate, they are more likely to have mental health problems. There are studies showing that people with depression, they show less emotional habituation when bad things happen. They recover much slower. For example, there's a great study from the University of Florida by Professor Aaron Heller. He tested students that just got results of a test. And he asked them how they were feeling every 45 minutes for, I think it was like a day or two. And what he found was if you got a bad result, you felt bad, right? And that was true regardless of your mental health status for both people who never had depressive episodes and people who had depressive episodes in the past. So everyone felt bad. The difference was how fast they recovered. People with no mental health history problems, they um, habituated much faster. People with depression or a history of depression, they also eventually recovered, but it took them much longer to do so. Couples habituate to marriage. On average, happiness drops back down to normal levels two years after tying the knot. Divorcees habituate to a breakup. Two years after splitting, happiness bounces back to the same levels as before. Habituation, therefore, can be a good thing. It can help us recover from blows, but it can also have negative effects. Habituating to a terrible job or an abusive partner isn't good. Individuals should feel motivated to leave a traumatic or abusive experience, but habituation can quell this motivation. One 1961 study showcased this. For the study, army men from Kentucky were asked to strip down to their boxes and spend eight hours a day for a whole month in a temperature-controlled room. The temperature was set to 11.8 degrees Celsius. That's 53 degrees Fahrenheit. This is pretty uncomfortable, especially if you're in your boxes. Normal room temperature is around 23 degrees. Each day, their physiological reactions were measured, and it transpired that these almost nude men shivered less and less with each passing day. Shivering is a response to the stress induced by cold, which of course helps you produce heat due to the muscle movements. But despite the reduction in shivering, the men's body temperature remained constant. This meant that the soldiers' bodies had acclimatised to the cold temperature. They got used to this fairly horrible scenario they habituated over time. Just like a friend stuck in that dead-end job, or a manager who puts up with a sexist work colleague, we habituate to negative experiences just as much as positive ones. But there is a solution. There is a way to halt habituation, and that's this habituation. Yeah, so this habituation is the opposite of habituation, right? So if habituation is when you stop responding to things that are always there, this habituation means that you suddenly start noticing and start responding to things because they were taken away from you, right? Or because they changed suddenly. If we go back to the mac and cheese example, if, you know, if you're given mac and cheese every day, you habituate, but then I take it away and you don't have mac and cheese for a week, for a month, you dishabituate and then it comes back, right? Or I could actually give you mac and cheese every day, but suddenly give it to you with extra chili or something. So now it tastes completely different. So you dishabituate, so you notice it again. And so dishabituation can happen very naturally in our life. So imagine again, you have, you bought your new home. It's wonderful and lovely. It's fabulous. But after some months and some years, you don't notice it again. But then you go on vacation, and when you come back, everything seems fresh again, right? The good stuff in your home brings you joy again. It kind of resparkles. 
And it's simply because you start noticing the things and feeling them. There's a great, I, I heard this post uh, podcast with uh, Judy Foster and she was, she just came back for, I think it was a month or so of filming. And she said she got back home and she was filming in a different country and she got back home to LA and then suddenly everything seemed so fabulous. She was eating an avocado and she thought, oh my goodness, an avocado, how wonderful. You know, she didn't mention habituation or dishabituation, but that's basically what was happening, right? Suddenly an avocado seems like magic. Over the course of our conversation, Tally kept reiterating this point to me. Habituation often reduces our enjoyment and happiness in life, but dishabituation can reignite it. Just like Judy Foster leaving her home for a month, all of us can spark enjoyment from a bit of dishabituation. And it doesn't have to just be a month-long break. It can be as simple as pausing your favorite song. So just think about one of your favorite songs or favorite artists, right? And then, okay, the question is, do you think you will enjoy that song more if you listen to it from beginning to end, right? No interruptions. Or if I stop the song a few times throughout, right? So when you ask this question, and this has been done in a survey, 99% of people say they want to hear the song with no interruptions, right? Intuitively, that makes absolute sense. Most of us will answer this. But then they actually measured people pre- people's pressure. They asked them at the end how much they enjoyed the song. And it's very counterintuitive. But what they found was that people enjoyed the song more with breaks. And not only did they enjoy it more, they were willing to pay double to hear the music in concert if they heard the song with breaks. And so why is that? So you start listening to the song and it's, it's you know, it's really great. And then over the course of the song, four minutes, five minutes, six minutes, habituation kicks in and the pleasure goes down somewhat. But if you stop me after a while, then, and then you start the music again, it jumps up to, you know, the beginning, almost to the beginning joy, right? And then it goes down a little bit, but then you stop me and it jumps up back. Um, And it's not just music. They did the same study with massages. So again, the question, would you prefer a one hour long massage or do you prefer a massage that will be with breaks? So every 20 minutes will be a break. And people say, I prefer a one hour massage. But again, when they measure people's ratings of how pleasurable the massage was, they actually enjoyed it more when it had breaks. Again, massage feels great. You habituate, you don't notice it, but if you have a break, then it goes back to max or close to max enjoyment. So I think what this shows is not only that habituation and and dishabituation has a huge impact on how, how we enjoy things, but that we're not aware of it. I mean, it's clear the difference between what people expect and what they actually feel is huge. Uh, and maybe my, my last favorite example is vacations. So we kind of usually like to go on these long vacations, one week, two weeks, right? And so um, a few years ago, I was advising a large UK tourism company, and they wanted to know what makes people happiest on vacation, when are they happy, and why. So we did some surveys, and we also went out to the resorts to interview people. So this was an especially fun project to work on. And we found two things that were really interesting. The first thing we found is that people on holiday were happiest 43 hours after arriving to the resort. So why is that? Well, 43 hours allows them time to get settled. They unpack and so on. So then they're really comfortable and they concentrate on the fun and the fun is at peak. But then, you know, it starts going down. It's not that they're not happy. They are happy. But the joy and happiness goes down slowly, 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 slowly throughout their vacation. 
And the other interesting thing is when we asked people, what was the best thing about your vacation? The one word that came up the most was the word first. They said the first cocktail, the first view of the ocean, the first dip in the pool. That was new. It was exciting. You know, the second dip in the pool was also good. And the third one was also good, but not as good as the first. The first is what stood out. And so I think what this means is that if you want to enjoy your vacation the most, you might maximize your joy by cutting it into bits, right? Instead of going for like a long vacation, you might chop it up into smaller ones. And it also will enhance your anticipation time, right? So it turns out, in fact, that the anticipation of a vacation is even more joyful than the vacation itself on average. There's been a great study at Harvard where they asked people that were about to go on vacation every day for a week before vacation, how happy they were, every day of the week of vacation, how happy they were, and every day for the week after vacation, how happy they were. And they found that the day before vacation was in fact the happiest. So that was a time where like they were imagining being on vacation and in their mind, it was so great. When they went on vacation, it was it was good, but it wasn't as good as it was in their mind the day before. Hearing your favorite song with pauses makes that song more enjoyable. Having a luxury massage with breaks makes the massage more pleasurable. Taking shorter holidays rather than three-week breaks boosts satisfaction. The key, it seems, to a happier life is finding ways to dishabituate, to break up the routine and add variety into life. But pausing and breaking up activities should only be done with enjoyable activities. For boring tasks, Tally says you should get them done all in one go. So we say chop up the good stuff, but swallow the bad stuff whole, right? So, okay. So then again, think about something that you hate to do, right? And But you need to do. So for example, I don't love grading papers. I don't love household chores, right? But I need to do these things once in a while. Um, and then the question is, what's better? If you just complete it in one go or if you took breaks? And again, when you ask people, most people say they want the breaks, right? But studies show that people suffer less if they complete this boring task, whatever chore it is, all at once, rather than take breaks. Because if they complete it all at once, the habituation kicks in and it doesn't feel as bad, right? So you start off, you're like, oh, this is terrible. But then you get used to it and it's not as bad, especially if it involves smelling something that doesn't smell good. Like, you know, you need to clean the toilet or something. Obviously, you're going to habituate really fast to that. But also if it involves just things I said, like, you know, grading papers, for example. For the boring and bad tasks, just get them over with. For the enjoyable ones, you want to break them and kind of maximize your joy. Break up your enjoyable activities, take pauses, take time away, don't gobble down the cheesecake all at once, savour each bite. However, for boring tasks, you should complete them all in one go. Don't take a long break while hoovering the house, just get it over with. Habituation can harm marriages, it can make us adapt to extreme temperatures and turn mac and cheese into a bland, tasteless meal. Dishabituation is the solution. But I'm aware that this advice is all quite high level. I wanted some more tangible guidance that I could use to improve my everyday life. So I pushed Tally for more direction. What should I do to improve my life? She had three suggestions, and I'll share each of them after this quick break. 
As many of you know, I have just quit my job to go full-time on Nudge, but prior to that, I spent my career working in startups. And startups aren't easy. It's long hours, small teams, tiny budgets. It makes marketing hard work, but it doesn't have to be. HubSpot for startups can help grow your business without growing your stress. Their all-in-one platform connects your sales, marketing, and support all together. So you can increase your leads, you can fast-track your deals, smooth out support, and join a platform that more than 190,000 top brands trust. HubSpot also offer discounts for startups on their top-rated customer platform and not the type of discounts that barely make a dent. So if you're ready to boost your marketing without breaking the bank, look no further than HubSpot for startups. To see how much you can save, visit hubspot.com startups. Welcome back to the show. You are listening to Nudge with me, Phil Agnew. Today, we are getting life lessons from a world-leading neuroscientist. The next tip is one I've heard before, but I have never managed to achieve. However, after hearing Tally's evidence, I was keen to try again. Here's Tally's next bit of advice. So we talked a little bit about if there's kind of chores that you know are annoying, you want to kind of swallow them whole. But there's another type of thing, which is they are things in your life that may have a negative impact on you. They may stress you out. They may cause anxiety, but you don't really realize it, or at least you don't realize to what extent, because they are always there, right? Um, they kind of loom in the background. It's it's like you have the AC on, and there you know how there's constant nose of AC. You don't really realize how much it has a negative effect on you until you turn it off, and suddenly you go, "Oh, I feel so much better." And so we think social media is an example like that. It's kind of like the AC that's looming in the background, right? It's making you, for for some people, for a lot of people, um, it turns out that it has a negative effect on you in terms of anxiety and stress, but you can't really tell how much because it's always there. And to really kind of know what the extent is, you want to experiment by quitting for a while, maybe for a couple of weeks to see what happens. And in fact, there has been studies where people were asked to quit. So one great example is by the economist Hunt Alcott, where he had two groups of people, one group of people about it was about a thousand individuals, a large group, he gave them about $100 each to quit Facebook for a month. Um, And then he had another group of people. He also paid them $100 each, but they didn't have to do anything. So they didn't quit. They went on with life as usual. And then at the end of the month, he came back and he checked what's going on with their well-being. And he found that across every measure, the people who quit were doing better. They were happier. They were less anxious. They were less stressed. And they were surprised. They did not expect this huge effect. So they really didn't realize how kind of annoying or how negative the effect of social media was on them until it was gone. And the other super surprising effect was that despite the fact that they said, I'm happy or, you know, I'm feeling better, at the end of the month, they went straight back uh, to to Facebook. So they reactivated their account. And so that, I mean, that on its own is a really interesting effect, right? Because people are saying this thing is making me depressed or anxious or sad to some extent, but then they go back why is that? So we think it's probably one of two things which are not like they're related. One is, well, it gives you social media gives you information. Sometimes it's misinformation, but you feel that it gives you knowledge. And sometimes people prefer knowledge, even if they know the knowledge is not going to make them happy, right? It's 
I mean, I, I feel this all the time. I know that reading the news is going to make me depressed, and yet I can't stop myself, right? The other kind of related thing is it's a sort of addiction. A lot of the times with addiction, we know that something is not good for us. It's not making us happy, even not like in an immediate sense. And yet there's this thing that is driving us to continue, kind of despite our, our will, so to speak. So 1,730 Facebook users were given $100. 865 were given the $100 with no restrictions. They could spend it as they wished. The other 865 were offered the $100, but only if they deactivated their Facebook account for one month. All of the participants were asked to indicate how happy they were before, during, and after the experiment. They also indicated how satisfied they were with their life. And the results of this experiment are astonishing. Across every dimension, those who deactivated their accounts were found to enjoy their lives more. The Facebook free group said that they were happier and more satisfied with their lives, and they were less likely to be depressed or anxious. Tally's hypothesis is that most of us have habituated to social media. We no longer notice the negative impact it has on our lives, and that's until we're paid $100 to remove it. Which begs the question, were previous generations happier than we are now? Did happiness actually fall when Facebook launched? Well, maybe. And I think maybe another really compelling study uh, was by an Italian named Luca Bragari. So whilst Hunt Alcott, what he did is kind of a, a manipulation, so he can kind of check causation, right? He manipulates and see the effect, so he can say there's a causal effect of Facebook on people's happiness. Uh, what Luca did, he looked at correlations, but in a way that's also very compelling. So what he noticed is that Facebook rolled out very slowly, right? So they started in 2004 at Harvard. And then after every few months, they opened up in another university. So it may have been Yale, Princeton, then Stanford, then Oxford, then Cambridge. Until in 2008, they opened for the public. He also knew that these universities keep track of the mental health of their students. So every few months, they have questionnaires. So he had access to this data. And what he found is that in almost every university, one, once Facebook was open to the students, mental health went down, right? So it opened in different times, but yet in all these universities, it um, really declined the mental health. And in when it came to the public, so from 2008, it turns out that depressive episodes increased by 80%. Um, and of course, he, you know, it's co correlational data. He doesn't, he can't really say that it's causal, but his statistics uh, model suggests that approximately a quarter of these incidents um, is due to social media. Again, we don't know, but that's his conclusion based on um, his statistics and his data. So um, I think the kind of takeaway here is it's worth a try, right? <laughs> Take a break. At least you know what the effect is. And then if you decide to go back, that's fine. That's your decision. But it's an informed one. There's an eye-opening result from this study that Tally didn't cover. It reveals what type of students felt most depressed following Facebook's launch. See, the universities measured mental health for each group of students, and they found that the students hit worst were the outsiders, those who lived off campus or did not belong to a sorority or fraternity. Facebook, it seems, was revealing to them for the first time the lives of other popular students. The outsiders, by means of comparison, suddenly saw their lives not as quaint or as comfortable, but as lonely. 
But harmful comparison is not the only issue with social media. Another is disinformation. And it turns out Facebook, by exposing us to so much disinformation, makes that very disinformation more believable. If we hear a statement, and this statement can be true or it can be false, if we hear it again and again and again, our brain processes it less and less, right? It makes sense. Because the first time you hear a statement, um, let's say I say a shrimp's heart is in his head, right? So your brain has to really process this. You might kind of think about the heart and the head. You might think about the last time you ate a shrimp. A lot of processing and energy goes on. The next time you hear it, the shrimp's heart is in his head. You don't need to do as much processing, right? The first time is and less. So your brain responds less and less to repeated statements, similar to the principle by which I respond less and less to smells, the same smell over and over or the sound over and over, right? And because we respond less and less to statements that we hear again and again, we then conclude unconsciously that they must be true. They become kind of familiar. There isn't a, there isn't kind of a surprise signal. And we have become accustomed to conclude unconsciously that when things do not trigger a surprise signal, they trigger a familiarity signal, which basically is no signal at all, right? Because there's nothing, we, I've heard this before, then I assume that it is true because often it is. I mean, often with a statement that you hear many, many, many times on average, that statement will be true, right? The problem is that there's also statements that you hear again and again that are not true. And yet, because of this, we then assume that they are true. And this is called the illusory truth effect, which is basically, if you hear a statement, even if you hear it twice, twice is enough to cause you to believe it. I mean, this effect has been shown so many times. And what we've done recently, we gave statements to individuals on a lot of different topics, such as health and science. We either showed the statements once or we showed them twice. So first of all, we replicate the illusory truth effect, which is very easy to replicate because it's very strong. When people hear statements twice, they assume it is true. And then we ask people, do you want to share this statement on social media? What we found was that people would rather share statements that they believe is, are true. And what statements are those? Statements that they heard more than once, twice, right? So basically people are sharing. I mean, I think what we found and other people have found a similar thing is people don't want to share misinformation, right? They're, they do want to share things that are true. They are just uh, sometimes misinformed or tricked by this, right? So there's a lot of misinformation on social media. You see it more than once. You believe that's true. And then you share it yourself. And then other people see it. And then you see it again. And it's kind of this feedback loop. This study from 1977 reveals how we habituate to lies. The participants heard statements like, space aliens landed in Roswell in the 1940s. And they heard that statement on three different occasions over two weeks. By repeatedly hearing that lie they became far more likely to believe it. When asked before the two weeks if this statement was true, almost no one believed it. After the two weeks, the majority started to believe. Likewise, Brits were more likely to believe that Brexit would generate an extra 350 million for the NHS after they saw it printed on a bus several times in spring 2016. Exposure increases believability, but that's not all. Tally discovered that increased exposure makes us more likely to share information. And this works both for misinformation and truthful information. But also you can take it on a positive side because the, the positive angle of this is that it also works for true statements, meaning that if you want to help others 
believe in what you're saying, it is good to repeat. You need to remember that like, if you repeat statements, people are more likely to believe you. Hopefully you're saying something true. And, and it's not just repetition. In fact, anything that can help our brain process less makes it believe it more. Like for example, if it's something visual and you make it with larger fonts, uh, bigger contrast, there's studies showing that simply writing things in larger fonts make them more believable. Putting statements in red make them more believable. Now, it doesn't mean that if I write, you know, in big letters, the earth is flat, you're going to believe me, right? Um, it's just, if you have two things, all else being equal, you're more likely to believe things that are easier to process. And it can be conceptually easier as well. So if you tie your ideas to familiar concepts, it's easier for the brain to process, you're, they're going to believe you more. You prime people with what you're about to say. Easier to process. People will believe you more. It seems believability goes hand in hand with familiarity. Now, we've covered a lot of lessons so far, but there is one more that I needed to share before ending today's show. It is a tip that is backed by science, which has proven to make you more creative. So it turns out there's studies showing that if you change your environment, um, you become more creative. And so why is that? So if you change your environment, you're basically inducing dishabituation, right? You're making yourself more likely to notice things around you, process things around you, process bits of information. If you're stuck in the same environment constantly, your brain may filter out lots of information that could end up being critical for creativity. Now, it, a lot of this information could be also distracting, right? But I think the real creative ideas usually come from little bits of information, knowledge, right? That is very mundane. That seems really unimportant. But if your brain is not filtering it out, it kind of is in your head. But then when you apply it to another field, suddenly it's a creative solution, right? You take something that's from biology, that's like nothing spectacular about it, but then you apply it to technology, right? And then suddenly that's the creativity. And so um, a few things have been tested. One is indeed just changing your environment. For example, you're working at your office and you work, you know, half the day at your office, you have a day you work at a coffee shop. Or for example, studies have shown that if you stop, you go for a walk or you go for a jog, that will enhance creativity while you're walking and while you're jogging. But also when you stop walking and stop jogging and you come back to your office and sit down, turns out the creativity also is enhanced. The effect only lasts on average six minutes, so it's not, not a very long-term effect. However, you know, those can be those six minutes where you have those aha moments. Inspired by this tip, I've been taking short six-minute walks while writing the script for this episode. While this personal experiment of mine is totally anecdotal, I do actually genuinely believe that this creativity tip does work. Okay, let's recap what we've heard so far. First, we habituate fast. It makes experiences less enjoyable, from mac and cheese to marriage. But dishabituation can help. Adding a break in a massage or pausing a song will boost enjoyment. However, for boring tasks, it's best to get them all over and done with in one go. Social media has all-round negative effects on well-being. Quitting social media appears difficult, but doing so offers instant rewards. One of which is less disinformation, which it seems becomes more believable after repeat exposure. And finally, creativity doesn't come from sitting under an apple tree. It comes from walking to the apple tree and sitting there for around six minutes. This advice is incredibly useful, but Tally had more. 
Later in our chat, Tally shared more eye-opening research on happiness. She covered one study that comprehensively researched if taking a major life decision helped or hindered happiness. I think the findings are extremely important. And all of that conversation is available in today's bonus episode of Nudge. If you want to get access to that bonus episode, it is really simple. All you have to do is click the show notes, drop in your email address, and you'll be sent the link to the bonus episode immediately. So you must head to the show notes, click that link in today's show notes if you want to access the bonus episode. Do so and you'll hear more fantastic evidence-backed advice from Tally. Now, if you've enjoyed today's episode, I think you will love Tally's new book. Look Again is co-authored with Cass Sunstein, and it is one of the best books on psychology and happiness that I have read. I was lucky to be given a copy in November last year, and I genuinely haven't stopped thinking about some of her findings since. I've diligently tried to apply as many of her suggestions as possible, although I'm still eating too much mac and cheese. But nevertheless, I believe the book has made me a happier human. If you want to pick up a copy, just search for Look Again wherever you get your books or click the link in the show notes. That's all for this week, folks. I hope you enjoyed this episode and I hope you will join me and Tally for the bonus episode after this. Just click that link in the show notes to listen. Cheers.